Hi, everybody. Uh, it's Thursday at five o'clock, which means you are at the bar. Um, I'm Inez Stepman with Independent Women's Forum. And I'm Jennifer Braceros with Independent Women's Law Center. Um, and Jennifer, I just got back from our quarterly meeting, um, our IW quarterly meeting, which uh, they take place in Washington, D.C. So we actually had a chance to have a drink in person for once uh, together. But today we are back to our virtual happy hour and I'm drinking red wine today. And since this week marks the opening of the Supreme Court term, I'd like to raise glass and toast to the Constitution and to all of its defenders, two of whom will be joining us today to discuss the year ahead. Hear, hear. I'd also, actually, if it's okay with you, Inez, um, like to take a brief moment to raise a glass to my father, Judge Jose Cabranes of the United States Court of Appeals of the Second Circuit, who announced yesterday his intention to take senior status at the age of 80, after more than 40 years on the bench, more than half of his life. He spent 15 of those years on the trial court, nominated by President Jimmy Carter, and the rest on the appointment of President Bill Clinton. I really, I never thought this day would come, to be honest with you. I thought he would keep going and not take senior status forever. Um, but he's been doing it a long time, and I think he just needs a break. Um, people, you know, last night when the news broke, a lot of people were, were chiming in on Twitter and, and texting me and talking about whether my father is a liberal or conservative, um, to which I can only say he defies categorization. He was appointed by Democrats, but he gave up his membership in any political party shortly after taking the bench. Um, and he was often mentioned for the Supreme Court as a potential Democratic nominee whom Republicans would accept. So if truth be told, I will say that my dad is what a judge should be. Impartial, nonpartisan, open-minded, hard to categorize, and a great defender of the American Constitution and our system of government. Congratulations. Congratulations, and and looks like he uh, he spawned a, a love in the law, um, a love of the law uh, for his daughter as well. So that's a nice uh, family tradition, particularly when it it coincides with such a love of the Constitution and of um, the, the liberties and the systems that make the American way of life possible. Uh, and and that you know so often um, I think are, <laughs> I mean this is not a, a new observation, but are, are so underappreciated by um, by folks today mm -hmm. who don't seem to realize how precious those liberties really are and how rare in, in human history. And that takes impartial judges to uh, to some to enforce that document. So um, in many ways, I, I'm only sad that that his replacement by President Biden will no doubt be somebody who is not as impartial as he is. Um, and so. As, as a conservative, that I, I'm not pleased with that. But, but you know, these decisions are highly personal and you have to do it when, when the time is right and when you're ready. So it is what it is. Well, maybe it's a commentary on where the Democratic Party, <laughs> how the Democratic Party has changed even since Jimmy Carter and, and Bill Clinton. Um, but on Monday, the Supreme Court, to, to turn to the subject of this at the bar, the Supreme Court opened the new term uh, with in-person oral arguments. So the first time that the court has heard from lawyers in person uh, since this entire pandemic started. Um, they have been hearing uh, these arguments via telephone, actually, um, 
not via Zoom. I think probably to try to preserve uh, the idea that they aren't going to live stream video um, of these arguments, because once um, once if they had done that for this coronavirus period, I feel like it would have been people would have clamored for it to continue. <laughs> I don't right. know that's Definitely. speculation, but um, I, I, I think that's probably why they did it. But uh, for now, they are returning to in-person um, oral arguments. And this is the first time that Justice Amy Coney Barrett um, is going, it has been participating in in-person arguments. And now that they're back in the courtroom, we can be protected from once again hearing the flush heard around the world. I'm still wondering who that was, but we can get into that later. Um, one Justice Brett Kavanaugh participated remotely after testing positive for COVID last week. And interestingly, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wore a black face mask while the court's other justices were maskless. No members of the public were allowed in. Um, I bet they'd like to actually keep that last part going. <laughs> no video and no members um. of the public. Um, but we have a, a fantastic pair of guests to discuss some of the, the most important cases that are coming up um, in this next term. So um, Anastasia Bowden is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, where she leads the Economic Liberty Practice Group. She's a graduate of Georgetown Law. Um, she's litigated cases concerning sex discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause and, under, and freedom of speech under the First Amendment. She's also the co-host of the DIST podcast, which tells the stories behind historic dissenting opinions, which is such a cool idea. You should really check that out. Um, and you can follow her uh, on Twitter um, at Anastasia underscore Esquire. Um, and in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I, we should note two things. One, that I, I used to clerk for <laughs> Anastasia um, way back in the day when I was a baby law student. Um, and, uh, and that was at PLF. And then also that IW filed a uh, friend of the court brief in the ninth circuit in support of one of Anastasia's clients, um, who is challenging the California requirement that corporations adopt female quotas for their boards of directors, which is a very interesting case in itself, but we are talking SCOTUS cases, um, these days, uh, today anyway. So, um, welcome Anastasia to at the bar. Thanks for having me. Hey there. Thanks for being here. One day, one day that woman quota case will be a Supreme Court case, Inez. You just wait. Oh, good. And we'll, we'll have you back on to talk about again. it. Yeah, definitely. Um, our second guest today, Willie Jay, leads the Supreme Court in appellate litigation practice at Goodwin Proctor, where also in the interest of full disclosure, I should say he is one of my husband's law partners. Uh, Willie is a graduate of Harvard Law School a former assistant to the Solicitor General and a former clerk to the late Justice Antonin Scalia. He has argued 17 cases before the high court and submitted briefs in more than 200, one of which he filed on behalf of the Independent Women's Law Center last year in an important free speech case. Welcome, Willie. Great to be here. Good to see you. Thanks. So as Inez said, the Supreme Court opened on Monday um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us generally or tell our non-legal viewers generally just quickly how Supreme, how the Supreme Court decides which cases it's going to hear and then maybe give your first impressions of the term, um, what you know about it so far. Actually, we're going to, and well, go ahead. Yeah, you go ahead. Well, well, actually, let me jump in right here. We're gonna we have kind of a fun little clip to kick off this discussion. Um, so we have we'll show this little clip first, and then we'll continue, Willie, with that with the question that Jennifer asked. Take all your guns and money. 
a desperate man Send all your guns and money The reason we play that is because so the subjects are going to be lawyers, guns, and money, uh, as well as school choice. Um, but but Willie, why don't you you give us your impression, as Jennifer said, um, of why you think the court chose this particular bunch of cases um, for this term? Well, obviously, the court can only take the cases that people bring there. And so some of these issues have been percolating for a long time, but haven't made it up from the uh, state courts and the federal appeals courts to the Supreme Court. Uh, and then others have been uh, basically uh, lines of cases that have been developing for a while. Like we're going to talk about the um, school funding case out, out of Maine. And the reason that case is here is because of a case the court heard a couple of years ago from Montana. The reason that that case is here is from a, uh, a case about playgrounds from Missouri from a few years before that, that the, the direction that those who advocate for increased uh, scrutiny of state laws that prohibit that prohibit religious schools from getting access to money, uh, you know, they've been moving in this direction toward a case like this one from Maine. So some of it is, is long-term strategy that's been years in the making. But the, the very simple answer to your question is the Supreme Court will hear any case that four out of the nine justices want to hear. And uh, you might be surprised uh, which justices choose to hear which cases. Uh, they don't always, it doesn't always track with how they wind up voting on the merits. And in particular, uh, some justices who might think, who you might think would be very much on the side of the petitioner in a particular case, will choose not to hear that case if they think they're gonna lose. So uh, the second amendment case that the court is gonna hear this term, uh, when the court's membership was a little bit different, the court declined a whole bunch of second amendment petitions all at one go. And the thinking around that was that uh, the justices more sympathetic to Second Amendment rights thought that they couldn't get a majority. Uh, and, and so we're not going to push to take any any new cases. So um, each of these issues, I think we're going to work through over, over the course of this uh, uh, time at the bar. But uh, a lot of strategy goes into litigants bringing cases to the court and the justices choosing which ones to hear. Um, I'm glad you, you wrapped up with, with the guns aspect of this. So, um, Anastasia, can you tell us a little bit about the Second Amendment case that is on the docket, which, um, as Willie said, the court had turned down a bunch of Second Amendment cases, perhaps because they feared they weren't the right vehicle or the composition of the court has changed with the addition of Justice Barrett. Um, but they have taken, finally, a Second Amendment case um, this round. So can you tell us a little bit about that case? Yeah, I think this case really is interesting, not just for the facts or sort of the precedent at stake, but exactly for the reason Willie and you both point out, which is sort of the incremental way that the court works um, and the way that the law develops, because it was, you know, I guess over a decade now uh, where the court first recognized an individual right to bear arms. Um, that was untethered to your participation in the militia and recognized that that right was incorporated against the, the states in the cases of McDonald and Heller. And since then, the court hasn't really filled out what that right means. It said that you do have that right, but we don't know, um, of course, with any right, there are there's some extent to which the government can burden the right. Most rights are not considered absolute by the Supreme Court. And so now we're going to fill that out a little bit. And the court had taken up a case last year out of New York 
because New York had uh, prevented people from taking even licensed firearms outside of the city. Uh, even if you were just going to your vacation home, uh, New York had New York City had prevented that. And so the court had taken that up and ultimately uh, the state mooted its own lawsuit and the, the Supreme Court ended up dismissing that case from its docket with a couple of justices saying, even though it had been dismissed, we still should really take up this issue. We should have heard it. This is really important or we're going to hear it again. And here we are the next term. It's a different law at issue. Uh, where in order to get a license to carry outside of the home, you have to prove that there's a really, really good reason for it, that you need it for self-defense. And a couple of people who had been denied such a license brought suit. And now we will find out if uh, burdening your Second Amendment right to bear arms outside of the home uh, violates the Second Amendment. So just to clarify for our non-legal audience, when you say that the, the New York mooted the case, um, you mean that they repealed the law in question, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I throw that term out because I see it so frequently in my, my litigation. Very often, you know, we bring a lawsuit. Um, I only sue the government. I work at a public interest organization that's devoted to constitutional lawsuits. And uh, we see this all the time that, you know, just as there's a strategy that goes on on part of the plaintiffs, there's certainly strategy that goes on uh, on behalf of the government. And we'll find that, you know, very often if they think that they're going to get a bad outcome or even worse, they're going to set bad precedent, they will dismiss or pardon me, they'll repeal their law. And so that's what happened here. And the law that, that is being challenged currently differs from the city law, the city's law that was repealed. How? Yes, in the former, in the case that was accepted last term, the law prohibited anybody from leaving the city uh, with their concealed uh, weapon, whereas here you have to get a license to carry. So it's 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 nearly the same, um, just different in scope, I suppose. Um, so this is this is a, a case I now I have a personal stake in somewhat um, as I don't have a firearm now, but I have considered buying and I live in New York City. Um, it is really complicated. And there there have been um, not just a concealed carry, which is at issue in this case, but generally to even um, create I mean, to go through the permitting process to even own a firearm at home is very, very difficult here. Um, although I came from D.C. where it's even worse. So. I mean, is this the beginning um, of a court that might actually enforce um, the the principles of Hitler and, and the incorporation of the Second Amendment? Because as you say, um, we had these landmark cases um, and then and that seemed to be very strong for the Second Amendment, for the right uh, to, to own a firearm. Um, and then we didn't really see a lot of states changing their restrictive gun control laws, because as you say, it wasn't at all clear how that right would be enforced by the courts. Um, and, and this is really the first foray they're going to um, go into to what it means uh, and what kinds of regulations uh, about firearm ownership are permissible or not. Like, what do you expect um, the court to, to do in this case? Yeah, I think it's interesting because even though someone like Justice Kagan has even said we're all originalists now, some justices are more originalist than others, shall we say. And so the more originalist that we get, the the closer that we uh, stay to the original intention and the original public meaning of the founders when it wrote the Constitution, I think that naturally lends itself to more liberty because the Constitution is a very liberty-oriented document and it actually takes rewriting the Constitution 
Constitution or undermining its provisions in order to get more government restriction. So now that we have justices who are avowedly more originalist, I do think that we will get a more serious engagement with these laws, some uh, better scrutiny of these laws, and ultimately um, that translates into decisions that are better for policy. And that's not to say that these judges are you know, uh, a partisan or or outcome oriented, they're applying a judicial philosophy that is rooted in its own uh, principles, and that tends to result in decisions that favor liberty. So that's that's actually a good segue because I was going to ask Willie how you would explain to again a non-lawyer um, sort of the about face that that Heller represented. Is it you know is it just as I think the press would say? Um, judges behaving politically, or is it, as Anastasia says, just a, a reinvigorated commitment to originalism? And how 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 would you explain that shift to somebody who doesn't follow these things closely? Yeah, I think that um, the fairest way to describe Heller uh, was that the court had not actually answered this question directly in any case, and really, even the dissenters, I think, agreed agreed with that. They didn't say this is a, a closed case and how dare you overturn our prior precedent. Justice Stevens's dissent went back to the original public meaning of the Second Amendment as well, to, came to a very different conclusion on it. Um, and, and Justice Stevens, I think, is, has forthrightly said in retirement that if he could, if he could get rid of just a few decisions uh, of the Supreme Court, Heller would be one of them. Um, but while during that time that the Supreme Court was quiet on the subject, I think that a lot of activists in this area had allowed themselves to believe and had kind of made part of their messaging that the Second Amendment doesn't really have any uh, anything to say about the ability to ban firearms or who can carry them. And their, their argument uh, is always it applies only to militias. Right, exactly. They would they would stop reading uh, after the first few words of the amendment being a well-regulated militia and not get to the part about the right to keep and bear arms. And they claim, I mean, pretty pretty explicitly, I, I would say the, the anti-Second Amendment crowd, claim pretty explicitly that up until Heller, the Supreme Court um, had only ever held that it applied to militias, when in fact, what you're saying is they never really had a chance to address whether it applied beyond that. I think that that's right. I mean, the there was this one cryptic precedent from the 1930s that I think a lot more hay had been made from than uh, in the kind of the minds of legislators and activists and you know people involved in uh, in the gun control debate for many years than it actually occupied in Heller itself. Um. One, this is a lesson in in uh, the importance of precision in legal writing, right? Because a lot of this hinges on a comma. These two radically different views of the Second Amendment um, depends on how you read the clauses of the Second Amendment. Um, of course, I, I agree with uh, originalists that this is sophistry and that if you actually it, it clearly at the time had a certain public meaning, as, as Anastasia said, um, but... It's funny how how much can hinge in legal writing on on a comma, even in a document that is is so um, sort of not legalese written as the Constitution that is meant to be read by um, everyone, by all the citizens, not just those with like a legal background or legislative background. Um, but it but it is kind of a funny argument um, because to get like to the specifics of the law here, essentially what what New York is saying is that 
in order to exercise your Second Amendment right, you have to prove that you are somehow different from the rest of the population, that you have some special need to defend yourself, um, which seems like a really odd way to talk about a constitutional right in a more fundamental way, right? Like, it's a very strange thing to say, well, you have this constitutional right, but you can't exercise it unless you prove yourself essentially unique from the rest of the people who presumably also have that constitutional right. I mean, could you address or maybe explain the argument from the other side a little better for me? Because that seemed to me to be just like uh, on a, from a total layman's perspective or from a logical perspective, that seemed like a very strange way to talk or write about a constitutional right. Yeah. I'll, take, I'll take a stab at it. Or Anastasia, you want to go first? Either way. I, I, I mean, mean, Willie, Willie, uh, Willie, go first, and then we'll bring. I'm sorry, that that was my fault as a moderator. I didn't indicate Willie. Um, if you could uh, answer first, and then we'll we'll bring in Anastasia. I mean, I think the, the the defenders are basically saying that the right stops at the property line, pretty much. That the right of armed self defense is to defend yourself in your home, and that the constitutional right, as a matter of history or original public meaning or something, um, stops outside the home and the boundaries of, of the home. So that's their strong, that's the strongest form of their argument. And then they have a backup argument that says, well, constitutional rights uh, can, can always be limited reasonably and that our restriction is reasonable. But, but they, they really would, and the Second Circuit, um, the strongest form of the, of the Second Circuit's reasoning in upholding this law was exactly that, that the right stops at your property line pretty much. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, that it's it's trying to cabin the Second Amendment right in the same way that uh, uh, people who were seeking to limit the Second Amendment said that that right was only limited to the militia. So at first it was, oh, it's only tethered to the militia. And then after we said that's not true, it was, oh, well, now it's only tethered to the household. And then now they're saying, well, now it's only tethered if you have a special need. And I think this is not something unique to the Second Amendment. It's something we see in the context of plenty of amendments. If you think about the First Amendment and the right to free speech, we see people who who favor government regulation or maybe favor uh, democracy over over liber individ individual liberty. They say, sure, you have a right to political speech, but commercial speech, that's a little bit different, even though that distinction is found nowhere in the First Amendment. Or if you think about the Equal Protection Clause, they say, well, if it has to do with race, then you get strict scrutiny. But if it has to do with sex and it's intermediate scrutiny, if it has to do with whatever, then it's relegated to rational basis. So so we see this sort of a creation of tiers of scrutiny or, or cabining rights in certain ways with all sorts of amendments, even though the amendments of them, themselves are, are pretty absolute. So one thing we tried to do, I, IWF and the Law Center filed a brief in this case. Um, and one thing we tried to do was sort of show um, the, the absurdity of the argument that you need to show a special need by pointing out that, that women benefit um, from gun ownership and the right to defend themselves and that they do have this special need. But of course, women are the majority of the population. So if the majority of the population has a special need for self-defense, conceivably, you know, even higher numbers have that need. So we'll see what they do with that. 
Yeah, let's let's turn to the next case um, on our, our docket that we're discussing today, which is one that's it's definitely close to my heart, given that um, most of my background is working in, in school choice um, and in education reform. So this is this is a follow up essentially to the Espinoza case, as Willie, I think, mentioned initially. Um, and that's Carson v. Macon. Um, and this is this is about a main program that if as far as school choice programs go is is um, nearly unique. There's one other like this in the nation in the sense that it actually goes back way, way before the modern school choice movement. So when we think about school choice programs that allow parents to uh, take some portion of state funds and use it for a school of their choice, or in some cases um, to, um, you know, sort of piecemeal assemble an education for their children from a, a variety of providers, um, but if we think about those kind of modern programs, those really started in the 1990s. Uh, but Maine's program goes back much, much further than that. It's over a century old, and it's essentially designed uh, to solve the problem of very rural school districts, right, um, where you might have a town that is so rural and it has such a low population that it doesn't actually make sense for the town to support, for example, a high school. Um, and so what Maine has been doing for a very long time is called a tuitioning program where they allow, they give families money to then access if in that town or closer, there is some form of private education. Um, they There's no way for that very rural town to support both this private institution that exists um, as well as a second public high school. And so what they allow um, is folks from these rural towns, if these, um, if you're, you're, uh, geographic location qualifies to essentially take those dollars anywhere they like. In fact, they allow people to take it out of state as well. Um, but what they have disallowed people to use those funds for um, are religious or sectarian, um, which will be an important distinction at some point, but um, sectarian schools, uh, meaning essentially religious private schools. So um, Anastasia, can you talk us through uh, the contours of this case? And then again, um, what you expect the court to do with it. Yeah, I think this case, once again, is such an interesting study in incrementalism, you know, beginning with the Zelman case where the Supreme Court said that if a state gives out vouchers and chooses to allow school vouchers uh, to sectarian schools, does that viol violate the Establishment Clause? And the Supreme Court said no, because it's not as if uh, the government is giving money directly to the schools. It's being essentially channeled through the choices of the students and the parents themselves. It's, it's a function of their choice. And in that way, it's not a violation of the First Amendment. So that really built out um, what the state could do, but it did not answer what it must do. And so since then, there have been a few other cases, including the case that was referenced earlier, Espinoza from, I think it was the 2019 term, which said that if a state chooses to essentially, if it chooses to give out uh, tax credits to schools, um, can it uh, disallow those tax credits to sectarian schools, which essentially means must it if it gives out money to these uh, non-sectarian schools, must it also allow them to the sectarian schools? And, and the Supreme Court said yes, but that was because uh, the court was disallowing uh, the money to go to these sector sectarian schools solely on the basis of them being sectarian. Now, this goes a little bit further, the case, uh, uh, this term out of Maine, which asks uh, whether the government can discriminate on the basis of the school actually having a sectarian curriculum. So again, it's just these incremental steps to, to 
further the liberty at issue. In terms of what will happen, uh, I mean, it's it's always a gamble when you're betting on the Supreme Court because exactly because Supreme the Supreme Court and the justices are lawyers doing law because it's not partisan because because law is uh, complex and nuanced and and because you get interesting um, arrangements and alignments and it's it's just very hard to to. Uh, predict. But if I had to predict, I do think that uh, at the end of the day, the Supreme Court is going to say that you can't even disallow uh, uh, any sort of aid to schools on the basis of their curriculum. And for the for the very same reasons that it ruled the, the same way in the Espinoza case and Zellman, um, these things are a function of student choice, parent choice, and uh, to disallow it is essentially some form of discrimination. But I, you know, I'm not a betting woman, and uh, uh, one shouldn't be when it comes to the Supreme Court. I, I want to drill down a little bit on that distinction between status and curriculum because, I mean, it's so interesting to me. I think anybody who is even remotely religious or who's ever sent their child to a religious school, even if they're not religious, understands that that status and mission, if you will, are, are one and the same. And it's really splitting hairs to say, I and mean, the courts already said you can't discriminate against schools because they're religious schools. But what does it mean to be a religious school? Well, of course it means you're imparting the faith. Now, maybe you don't teach, you know, the catechism of the Catholic Church, but you're teaching it through, I guess, your school rules, your school morals, uh, I don't know, uh, ethics classes, other things. I mean, it is it is virtually, I think, impossible to separate the two. What would you say to that, Willie? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're only protected against discrimination based on your status, I mean, that means that the Catholics can run a secular private school just like a secular group can run a secular private school. But it, we are, after all, talking about a provision of the Constitution that protects the free exercise of religion, right? It's not, it's not just that religious people, right? It's not just that religious people get the same right to go to the grocery store, run a school, and you know, get the mail uh, as everybody else. Uh, it has to do with the free exercise of religion. That includes ministering to congregations. It includes uh, uh, worshiping. Uh, according to religious doctrine, and for many for many denominations, though certainly not all, it means bringing up their children in the faith. Yeah, it does. It does seem like um, a part of of uh, this this sort of strain, not only in the law but in the broader culture, to try to cabin religion as um, only something that can happen within a full four walls of a church, for example. And for, and, and the idea that you could have a, a um, Catholic school that doesn't in any way uh, live out the Catholic doctrine or the Catholic faith and still call it, um, uh, you know, that, that the Catholic school has the right uh, not to be discriminated against if they don't act like Catholics. Um, that, that seems to me again, to be such a limiting and a hollow uh, way to think about, religious liberty. Um, what, do, what do you think, Anastasia? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to agree and just not really on a legal point, but just an interesting policy point about why this case is so salient. You know, I think school choice has really uh, become increasingly important in the era of COVID when people became acutely aware of what it means to be limited in your school choice um, and to have uh, to be shut out from public schools and particularly how it affects people who can't afford to go to private schools. And so people are favoring this. And in fact, I just think it's interesting that in my own life, I've seen friends who are not religious choosing to go to sectarian schools exactly because they offer more choice, because they had different protocol, because they're teaching different curricula. So um, it's just an interesting thing about regardless of, of the uh, curricula, more and more people are choosing to go to these schools and, and how important choice really is right now and salient to people. And I think another thing, I mean, this isn't a legal point, but it goes to what you're talking about in terms of choice and, and why people um, are pulling their kids out of some public schools and choosing sectarian schools now. Because the truth is that, that non-denominational, you know, non-religious schools often have a very real religion of their own. It might not be Judaism or Christianity or, or, or any of the major religions, but they are essentially proselytizing a faith, an ideological faith, right? We've seen that with critical race theory. Um, we've seen it with, you know, environmental justice in some schools. Um, and and they are teaching it as a dogma, not as a method of inquiry. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, we all schools are religious schools, if you think about it that way. Yeah, actually, um, I'd like you guys to address something that may be a little bit in the weeds, but to, to the point that Jennifer just made, um, why is there such a big split in how we think about the two clauses that relate to religion in the First Amendment, right? Because when we think of free exercise, um, like uh, versus establishment, right, that you shall not, um, Congress shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion. On the other hand, free exercise, right? Um, it seems like for the latter, for free exercise, we have this very expansive definition of what counts as religion, right? Here I'm thinking about the cases from the 1960s and 70s where you had conscientious objectors who didn't want to go to the Vietnam War um, and and were essentially claiming something akin to secular humanism um, as a a religion and and the court declining just understandably so right declining to to really um, kind of dig too far into what is and isn't a religion um, but then on the flip side to the point Jennifer just made on the establishment side. Um, even when you have an ideology that seems to have a lot in common with a faith in the sense that it has a doctrine and that it enforces a code of ethics um, and, and, and is certainly a deeply held belief, right, uh, with regard to its, its practitioners. And I'm being intentionally sort of provocative here. But, um, you know, is that something you see the court resolving at any point? This, this sort of on the one piece of the, the First Amendment and the religious liberty um, parts of that amendment, we have this very expansive definition that includes your view on life, the universe, and everything. And on the other hand, um, on the establishment side, we, there's, there's, I mean, there's no case that I'm aware, and I don't think there would ever be a, like in the foreseeable future on basis to bring a establishment case against what seems like an ideological religion that's being taught in public schools. I think people have occasionally brought claims against local schools that were teaching, for example, um, 
a version of environmentalism that goes so far as to worship Gaia, the uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the personification of the earth. Uh, and you know, there's been some small amount of litigation like that. But I think at the Supreme Court level, religion on the free exercise side has actually been something that more often has united rather than divided the justices. In the Obama administration, which never called it free exercise, it only called it freedom of worship, um, took a, the remarkable position that uh, federal law could regulate churches' selections of ministers and religion teachers uh, you know, under anti-discrimination law. And uh, the justices were unanimous in saying that is a remarkable position and we reject it. So while establishment questions have definitely split the justices along ideological lines for many, 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 many years, and the school voucher case from the early 2000s, uh, Zellman was one such case, um, free exercise has actually uh, caused the court to cross ideological lines more often than it has divided uh, kind of Republican appointees versus Democratic appointees. So we, we've talked about lawyers and guns and, and school choice. Now I'd like to move on to money. Sorry, um, that was my fault. I put it out of order from the song. But oh, no, no, no. That, that <laughs> is responsibility yeah, for, for switching money out of its rightful place. Rhetorical. No, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, so, so the next case we're going to talk about is called CVS versus Joe. And um, I think for non-lawyers, this case seems a little complicated in the weeds and not that important. Um, but when you, when you really look at it and take a bird's eye view of this case, there are a lot of things that can impact regular people on a daily basis in this case. Um, basically, what you have is, is plaintiff's lawyers uh, trying to get money from CVS Pharmacy, uh, for a policy that they say has a disproportionate negative impact on a subset of disabled people, in this case, people with HIV. Um, but the implications go far beyond HIV, far beyond pharmacies, um, far beyond healthcare. So, Willie, could you tell us a little bit about that case and why this whole notion of disparate impact theory matters to, to public policy generally and to the average person? Right. Disparate impact is a theory of discrimination that doesn't involve anyone actually intentionally discriminating. I mean, I, it is the theory that even a series of choices that don't involve intentionally treating people of one race better than another, one sex, one religion, one, you know, uh, people with or without disabilities better than others, um, that designing whether it's a public policy or a service that banks offer, or in this case, a, um, a pharmaceutical benefit uh, in a health insurance system, that the way that it results winds up being unequal and burdening people with a protected characteristic, and that it therefore is illegal. That's what disparate impact is. And it, you know, it, this is something that's come up in, in the race context, you know, an employment practice that winds up screening out more minorities than white applicants or right, in so, the so in the race context the the classic example that you'd hear is that a certain test has a discriminatory impact let's say on a certain racial or ethnic group so people will argue you know the sat 
has a discriminatory impact on on blacks and Hispanics, or or they might say um, they might argue that a physical fitness test has a has a disparate negative impact on women who are applying to the police academy. That's the type of uh, litigation that you might typically see in this area, but but disability is fundamentally different than either race and sex. And I, I'm not a big fan of disparate impact in those contexts either. But but taking it into the disability context seems so extreme to me because particularly because the disabled community isn't a monolith. So you could potentially have a policy that has a negative impact, for example, on the blind, but a positive impact on the deaf, right? And so how, why, why should courts be in the business of deciding which group policy favors? That's sort of my big, you know, bird's eye view and problem with this line of, of, of cases. And what the court's being asked to decide is that basically federal money, as I think, most of the viewers probably know, comes with a lot of strings. When you, when you take money from the federal government, you are agreeing to a bunch of conditions that have been written by, some of them by Congress, some of them by administrative agencies. Uh, and the question is, is one of those strings, we know that one of those strings is you can't discriminate against disabled people uh, in a federally funded program. But does that extend so far as this, the kind of prohibition on disparate impact that employers face or you know banks doing fair lending uh, face and so th the facts of this case are kind of interesting because uh the plaintiffs belong to a health plan and the health plan pays for the uh pharmaceuticals that they use to treat their hiv as jennifer mentioned it's a class of hiv positive plaintiffs and cvs which is the benefits administrator um, says, I think basically for cost reasons, um, medicines in these categories, and that includes, but is not limited to these HIV medications, you've got to get through the mail order pharmacy. Why? Because it's cheaper. And, and because you take them for a much longer period of time, you're getting a larger supply uh, and, uh, and so on. And they're saying that the right to go to the pharmacy and to see the pharmacist and to get your prescription filled in person, that is what they're seeking access to. And they're saying that this has a, uh, a disproportionate impact on disabled people, even though it clearly was not designed to discriminate against disabled people. Well, and uh, in fact, it, it's even more silly than that, because first of all, the, the whole idea of mail order prescriptions was designed to aid the disabled who, would, who might have trouble getting to the pharmacy. So that's right. one if you're in a wheelchair, you know, you, you might well like mail order um, right. you know, quite, quite a bit. And, but the other piece of it is that they don't require you to get it only by mail order. You can go and get it at CVS. If you prefer to go and talk to the pharmacist, you can get it from their pharmacy. And it's the absurdity of this case is that they're saying, well, we don't want to get it by mail order and we don't want to go to CVS because CVS pharmacists are indiscreet or they don't give good advice about how to take the medicine and when. We want to go to our local pharmacy and the fact that you won't let us go to, you know, the ABC pharmacy of East whatever um, discriminates uh, against us because we have HIV. I mean, it, I don't know how the justices don't just laugh this out of court. So a lot, a lot of contingencies have to be true for this plaintiff class to actually win. But they, the way the court has taken it, uh, 
is it really is just asking the first and biggest question. Is disparate impact a thing in disability law at all uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the federal funding context? And also in, there are different statutes that apply to health plans that take federal money, including any plan that you get on the Obamacare exchanges, Medicaid, you know, any, anything with federal, federal money attached. Um, so it, if you're a university, you obviously get federal money in the form of Pell Grants uh, and uh, uh, research funding. And those strings that you get with federal money, they extend all throughout your program if you're a university, for example. So this is uh, the idea that you have to relook at every, every choice you've made and every way you've structured your operations to see if they have a disparate impact on the basis of disability, not just disability generally, but as Jennifer said a few minutes ago, like every conceivable disability. Uh, you, you can see why uh, this is a, a case that the bu business community, the higher ed community, and basically anyone in the uh, in, in a business that involves taking federal money uh, is concerned about. It really puts uh, businesses and, and educators between a rock and a hard place. One of the examples we pointed out in our brief in this case is, um, you know, example with respect to the mask mandate, because um, the Biden administration has recently said that they're going to investigate um, schools that prohibit masks, because that could be a violation of the, uh, that would could have a disparate impact on disabled students who, you know, might have some underlying condition and puts them at risk of the virus. Well, you could equally argue that students with certain learning disabilities are disparately impacted by having to wear a mask because they can't see social they can't see social cues they can't see their teachers lips moving when they speak and so children with certain learning issues um, are negatively impacted by that so once again you know you have two groups of disabled students um, who are impacted exactly oppositely by a policy. And the question is, should the courts decide that or should should politicians who are close to the people decide that? I mean, clearly in my view, it's not the courts that should be making those types of decisions. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in the context of this case, it really is more about money. But as you said, disparate impact comes up in a lot of different contexts. And more traditionally, it comes up with discrimination with regards to immutable characteristics. And I think thematically what's going on in these cases is blurring the line of what constitutes discrimination. All these cases are coming up in the context of discrimination. Well, discrimination is about differential treatment on the basis of a characteristic. And it's about intent as well. That's what discrimination is, right? It's treating somebody differently with the intent to discriminate. You're treating them differently and on the basis of that characteristic. And disparate impact elides those two things. It looks at people solely, it looks at policies solely in terms of their effect on different groups. And to me, that's a different a different question. And also it's it's really counter to, to the promise of equal protection and getting rid of discrimination, which is making sure that individuals are protected from invidious treatment. And, you know, ultimately what it ends up doing is it, it leads people when they just focus solely on the uh, impact on groups, it leads to balance. It leads to balancing to avoid that disparate impact. And so it actually leads to in the racial context, you can see this with employer policies is they are so terrified of producing a disparate impact, 
even if that even if the policy itself the policy itself is not discriminatory and it's not intended to discriminate but it might have a disparate impact that they will sort of engineer things in ways to create a racial balance so it's actually perpetuating discrimination in the process and that's why i think a lot of this focus on groups is wrong the value of a policy doesn't come from how it affects groups the value in a policy comes from the value of the policy is it arbitrary or not is it good or not some policies which cause disparate impacts might be fine in and of themselves you can imagine what if a law against uh, uh, murder happened to happen uh, to affect people with blonde hair you know that doesn't mean that now we have to get throw out the policy against murder impact on men fundamentally every single sorry that's my dog um every single policy uh in some way i mean i really can't think of a policy that doesn't have disparate impact where as you say uh if you work backwards from the assumption that people are equal as groups rather than equal as individuals um you know, virtually any law passed in the United States or any other civilization, frankly, um, if you work backwards from groups, is going to have disparate impact for a variety of reasons. And we could have an entire, you know, at the bar discussing all of the reasons that there might be a disparate impact. Um, but but that's why I find this analysis so pernicious. I mean, as Jennifer has said, it's it's particularly ridiculous when you're talking about the disabled because you could have different kinds of disabilities that are impacted in totally opposite ways. Um, but even this kind of analysis for race and for sex uh, ignores all of those other factors uh, that go into, you know, how an individual navigates um, both life and then under the law uh, and, and, and really reduces them only to these group characteristics, a member of a pod or a group, right? Um, and, and then if the group is not doing exactly the same as this other group, then th the reason, the assumption is that the reason, the underlying reason must be discrimination, when in fact there could be many, many other reasons. Um, where is disparate impact analysis most used under the law? Um, and and uh, I'm going to ask Anastasia here, um, where do you see it becoming more popular, if you see it becoming more popular um, in the courts? And, uh, you know, where should we be looking at? What, what should we be looking at in this case for the Supreme Court perhaps to set the tone, not just in the narrow case, or perhaps they'll do that as well, but um, is there the possibility that the court will set the tone on this kind of disparate impact analysis um, question beyond the boundaries of, of um, IDEA or, or disability law? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if we'll get anything like that out of this case, just because from my perspective and, and from what I've heard from others is that this case is so uh, open shut. It's the, the, the text of the statute itself that it prohibits discrimination solely by reason of disability. And that is very clear that it's it's not meant to encompass disparate impact. It's meant to encompass intentional discrimination on the basis of disability compared to other statutes which contain other flowery language which talks about how uh, any policy that affects groups will also be illegal so just because this case is so open shut and in fact there was a 4-1 circuit split with only one circuit um, um, I believe on that side although 
in any event, I don't know that we'll get it from this case, but I do, again, think thematically what's happening here, and we do see this most often in the context of race, is this hyper-focus on group. And that's just so fascinating to me that you're elevating group characteristics, the very characteristics that are supposed to be arbitrary, the characteristics that we have no control over and we're born into, like our sex, like our race, you make that the most important thing in in analyzing uh, people and policies, and to me, and, in, and on the basis of groups too, and that just gets exactly uh, the idea of individualism and the idea of equal protection before the law wrong. Um, and so it is a sort of pernicious thing. I just want to point out though that disparate impacts or disproportionate impact. Um, as a theory itself, I, I think is is not useful, but but as evidence, it can be. And so, in other words, it's not always irrelevant. And so, when, when you're trying to prove an intentional discrimination case, um, you know, a jury, for example, would look at the totality of the circumstances. Were there negative comments made about this person on the basis of of his or her race? Um, uh, were and did did the people who make those negative comments, um, racial comments, say implement policies that then had a negative impact on those groups? That would be relevant. So, for example, in a in a college admissions policy case, for example, uh, just to to name a hypothetical, uh, to raise a hypothetical, if you had people saying negative things about Asians in a college admissions office, and then those people went and implemented a policy that said uh, nobody with certain personality traits or certain res resume characteristics uh, could get into that school, and that policy then had a disparate impact on Asians, that might be one piece of evidence to show discrimination. But the policy in and of itself proves nothing, in my opinion. I'm totally with you on that, that it's it can be used as evidence, but it shouldn't be determinative. And unfortunately, I think, you know, just not to bring it back to the woman quota, but just briefly, you know, at this point, I feel like very often any disparity between groups, the government is now seeking to remedy as an end in and of itself, regardless of if that disparity is a result of discrimination. And that's the real problem. We can't seek balance on group basis for its own sake. You can use it as evidence of intentional discrimination, but it shouldn't be determinative. Um, well, we have time to, to just barely touch on one last case here, um, and that is a death penalty case um, about uh, the, the the unfortunate bombing that happened um, in at the Boston Marathon. So, if you if you rewind your memory a little bit, um, there there were uh, of course extremely tragic consequences. A pair of brothers bombed, um, I believe, the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Uh, and now one of those cases, the death penalty case, um, is being accepted by the Supreme Court for review. So, Willie, uh, could you give us just a brief overview of that case and what you expect? Sure. I mean, just very briefly, the appeals court in Boston threw out the death sentence uh, because they said that the trial judge had not done a good enough job uh, screening the jury for exposure to pretrial publicity. Um, they, could, they could even have thrown out the conviction if uh, it hadn't been clear that from his own admission that he was guilty. Uh, so they said harmless error as to the conviction, but they threw out the death sentence. They also said that he should have been able to argue, uh, basically, to put in more evidence, even, the, even though unreliable, of his brother's past criminal history to show that it was really more his brother who was the bad guy and that he deserved uh, a life sentence rather than death. 
Uh, so the government took this case to the Supreme Court. The petition was filed under the Trump administration. The Supreme Court, uh, interestingly, held on to the petition for several weeks after the inauguration, I think waiting to see if the Biden administration would pull the petition and basically give up on the death, on the death sentence or at least uh, agree to a retrial instead. Uh, and it didn't do that. The administration is continuing to defend the death sentence, even while there is an execution moratorium, uh, because, you know, quite frankly, uh, th this defendant is the worst possible defendant uh, on which to uh, draw a line in the sand and say we're against the federal death penalty if you're uh, if you're the administration. So the, the two questions uh, that the court's going to hear next week are basically did, how much deference does the trial judge get in picking a jury in a high profile case and how much leeway does a capital defendant get in putting in evidence of mitigation reasons why he shouldn't get the death penalty. Um. Anastasia, do you have anything to, to add about this case? It's fine if you don't. I you know, I'm totally outside of my practice, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. Um, all right. Well, we are going to wrap up if that's the case. Uh, this this has been another episode of At the Bar, which we do every Thursday at five o'clock. We usually have our our wine or our drinks, and we have great guests like these two, Willie uh, Anastasia. Thank you so much. Uh, for joining us here today at the bar and giving us a little preview of the upcoming Supreme Court term. We'll be looking for these cases and more um, when those decisions are handed down. Jennifer, you have anything to wrap up with here? Yeah, I just want to remind people that at the bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum and it is available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube and IWF.org. It's also available for download on all your favorite podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and others. So um, download it, listen to it in the car, listen to past episodes, and we hope you'll join us again in two weeks at the bar. Uh, yes, please join us in two weeks. Sorry, I correct myself. It's every two weeks, not every one week. Um, but yes, every two weeks at the bar is on Thursday, five o'clock. Come join us. We hope you'll join us again in the next two weeks, and we'll see you at the bar. <laughs>